The Just Podcast is brought to you by ReCity Network. ReCity is the Triangle's hub for social impact. If you're interested in learning more about ReCity, start by booking a tour at ReCityNetwork.org. ReCityNetwork.org is also where you can go to subscribe to their monthly newsletter or make a donation to support ReCity's work. The website, again, is ReCityNetwork.org. Before we get started, we wanted to let you know that we're tackling some tough subjects today. And just like we take a moment to check in with ourselves, we're going to encourage you to do the same. We talk about subjects like incarceration, and we want to be sensitive to your needs. These are heavy topics, so make sure you show up for yourself if needed. You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice, a part of the Capital Broadcasting Podcast Network in partnership with ReCity and Coastal Credit Union. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate. We're here to listen. We're here to process. And we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to be preachy because we don't have all the answers. And we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person, and that starts with our personal Personal check-in. Let's do it. I'm excited to share with our listeners my check-in today. So this is not about me. This is about my son. So if any of you listened to that first episode, I hope you all did. You probably saw my son maybe on TikTok doing his his dance video. He's 17. He's 6'5". He's a senior. And he's also a football player. He's a wide receiver. And so we just signed, or he just signed, this is his first adult move, to attend Morehouse College in Atlanta. Wow. But y'all, I am thrilled that my son will be playing college football and I'm more excited about him graduating from Morehouse and being a Morehouse man. They have a amazing legacy of building black men into just men of real honor and they do a lot of really incredible work in some of the work that we're talking about through this podcast. So I'm very proud of him. It's also the home of Martin Luther King. He graduated from there. Wow. Spike Lee, right? Who wow, else? That's a legacy right yeah, there. Yeah, it's a lot. I can't wait. When you make the t-shirts for your cheering section, we'll, I, I'm an XL. Just okay. Okay, I got so you, know. you. Done. So we're proud of him. But what's your check-in? This must be, yeah, we, we didn't sync up notes ahead of time, but this is brag about your kids time, Ooh, I guess. Fantastic. So I'm going to go in a, in a complimentary direction, but I have four young kids, a six-year-old, five-year-old, three-year-old, and two-year-old. The three-year-old is a girl and she's a spitfire. I mean, she just, sunbeam, wherever she goes, she's making, mm-hmm. she's making the whole room smile. So she started this thing that she started to explain to us basic household items but in her own like three-year-old way and we would be like what in the world is this like (laughs) we don't know what you're saying right so it started (laughs) this this started with her singing a song to me uh in the morning when my wife was not there i'm the only interpreter she's just singing this song and i have zero clue what she's saying yeah she's three zero clue yeah turns out she was singing one of the songs from kanye's new album oh (laughs) word for word (laughs) no and I did not have any context. Are you serious? And apparently it was very clear to the rest of the world. And the <gasps> album is amazing. Jesus is King. That that one. Yeah, there's no, it's okay. a, it's like a gospel it's, album. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kanye's had a whole big thing going on, okay. right? That's, I don't know. Yes, okay. it's true. He is having church on Sunday. He's, he's got a, he's, his life has dramatically changed. So anyway, she's singing me his song. And I'm like, so my wife takes it, records it, puts it on social media and basically is like, what song is this? And so, so she starts turning oh these descriptions into trivia. So that has led to, we've moved past music to 
her describing uh, ice cream sandwiches, sure. describing a cheese Ritz bit to us, mm-hmm. and like how a three-year-old would do that is the cutest thing in the world. Oh my gosh. So, I'm not on Instagram or I don't post maybe once a year. I'm not a good follow, but if you want entertainment, you should check out my wife's Instagram <laughs> for my three-year-old who is describing basic things in life and doing it in a way that's going to just melt your heart. I love it. So, Our kids bring us Being joy. parents are amazing. It is. And you, you have so much time before you're sending them off to college, so enjoy all the moments. Yes. We're going to talk about this incredible movie, Death's mm-hmm. Mercy. But I want our listeners to sort of just, you know, take this in. This is like, this is a 101 class, okay? And we're going to get a little bit deeper in 102 next <laughs> or 201 or whatever it is to help us unpack this a little bit more. But just stay open. Stay mm-hmm. open to the content. Don't get overwhelmed because it shuts you down from taking more in, right? And so just join us on this. And then we're going to deep dive again with the district attorney of Durham County who's going to help us really bring it into focus. Mm-hmm. Reason why we wanted to talk about this now is so relevant because Just Mercy came out near the beginning of this year, 2020, and has really made a strong impact. Now, the book has been out and people, there's all the buzz, right? Brian Stevenson's book on Just Mercy and his lived experience, but bringing it to scale on the, on the big screen really takes it to another level. It's like, it's like this podcasting helps bring scale to issues, but the the movies that's a whole different ball game, and it really can change the way we look and view how we move within our communities and in this ju- the justice system. So this buzzword of mass incarceration, yes, just to frame that up, that's a that's a big word, right? But I'm going to throw out some stats for you just to help frame this. If you're not familiar with the term, there's some resources we'll probably provide to you at the very end. But just to set this up national kind of zooming out to the U.S. for a second. Here in the the land of the free, we have the highest incarceration rates in the entire world. Yep. To frame that in a stat, the U.S. makes up only 5% of the world's population, but has 25% of the world's prisoners. We've got 2.2 million people inside America's prisons and jails today, which is a 500% surge over the last four decades. That right I mean, there. Just sitting with that, it's a, it's a, it's significant. I mean, so just you're talking about the decade since 1972, I think, is the actual date, right? Yes. There were 300,000 people in our prisons in 1972. And today there are 2.2 million people in our million. prisons. It's about 700 for every 100,000 people as in the prison system. Yep. And then when you dig a little deeper, you talk about inequities of who is in prison. Who are we imprisoning? Right. Carolina Justice Policy Center has the statistics that the African-American men have a significantly higher percentage of lifetime likelihood of imprisonment. One in 17 white males will do prison time compared to one in three African-American males. And then also this idea that we think about law and order type shows where we think about trial, trial, everyone goes through this process, right? Where they get their chance and the truth is found out, but that's a myth. Right. Not everybody goes to trial. If every single person had a trial, the whole system would shut down, mm-hmm. which I think disincentivizes people, right? We have set up our system to discourage people going through that process. Uh, and so it ultimately comes down to if you can take a plea deal, right? Right. And you're getting pressure from an attorney who may not represent your best interest. They're just seeing you as a stat. And not a story, not a human, right? Go to jail for three years because if you go to trial, you got a risk of 30 years or more if you lose. And so as a result of that kind of disincentivization, 97% of people just do not go to trial and instead take a plea bargain. Mm-hmm. 97%. 97% of people 
take that plea, which means it's on their record and they do that time. And that doesn't even, they weren't even assessed whether they were guilty or innocent. That's right. They just get that mark on them that is in our system then kind of brands you for life. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot lot. there. That's a lot. And that's That's scratching the surface and probably need to maybe just sit with that for a little while. It's hard to imagine that that is real. Well, it's hard for me to imagine. I'm sure some of our listeners are like, yo, this is my, I, this is my community. This is my family members, right? I have it on both sides of my family. My my cousin who's a public defender in Cook County in Chicago, so he's doing the good work. And I have other members who have been in the system, so I get it. It is uh, pervasive, and it is a crisis that we are undergoing. Like, our country really is under siege for these sort of broken systems. We'll bring you more Just Podcast right after this. Okay, let's talk about the movie Just Mercy. For our listeners who have not seen the movies, for those that you have, I'm just going to set this up very quickly. I think it's helpful. <laughs> Dominique Gilliard, who's the author of Rethinking Incarceration, uh, helped set this up. Now, he has has that book out, but mm. he really was thinking about ways to help unpack the viewer's experience of the movie. Okay, and so... Here's the overview. So Just Mercy, which I'm saying is required viewing, it's going to move you to tears and prayerfully compel you to act. The film is based upon a New York Times bestselling book, and it revolves around the faith-rooted activism of Brian Stevenson. So for those of you who've seen the movie, it's played by Michael B. Jordan in the creation of the Equal Justice Initiative, which we'll refer to as EJI. Just Mercy recounts the tragic story of Walter McMillan, who's played by Jamie Foxx. McMillan, who we'll refer to as Johnny D., Um, And they referred to him as that as his nickname in the movie. He's an African-American who owned a lumber company in Monroeville, Alabama. Interestingly enough, Monroeville is also the birthplace of Harper Lee. So if we all are familiar with the book To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Harper Lee was born there and she is lauded in that town. Apparently they're very proud of it. They're very proud of, of, of To Kill a Mockingbird and of her. Okay, so... Johnny D was framed in Monroeville for the murder of Rhonda Morrison, who was an 18-year-old white girl. So Stevenson sort of, we go through this journey with Johnny D as we watch the movie. And you can sort of imagine the ride that we went on from the moment in which he was pulled over, right, and accused of... Uh, accused of killing Rhonda Morrison about a year after, I believe that's right, about a year after the murder actually took place. Maybe it was eight months. And taking that journey of six years where he's on death row, faced uh, with charges of a murder that he did not commit. And so Brian Stevenson comes in and is exposed to this injustice and really takes us through what it is like in, you know, Southern America at that time for a black man who's wrongfully convicted. At the end, Stevenson writes, listen, we're all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, and a nation, which I think we saw and hear in those statistics. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair until we all suffer from the absence of mercy and we condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. The closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, the more I believe, this is Brian Stevenson speaking, the more I believe it's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy. We all need justice, and perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. 
And so, I mean, that's that's heavy, mm-hmm. right? And so, mm-hmm. I, what we wanted to do today before we bring in our district attorney, the Durham County District Attorney, is really talk about what our first thoughts were and right. how the film impacted us. Right. You know, we again for our listeners, it's you haven't seen us, we don't have any pictures out of us, but we're we're different people, mm-hmm. right? So Rob is a white man, and he's he's married with four four kids has an incredible history around justice and equity and how he thinks about it, the lens in which he, which he looks through his world and how he chooses to raise his family and be a husband and be a community member. And I'm a single mom, married 12 years, divorced, but a single mom, African-American, raising a 17-year-old black boy, but from a very small town, probably very similar to Monroeville. When I, when I was watching this movie, one of my first thoughts was, I get this. You know, it's not in the South, but it was small town. And I was constantly, you know, using people would use the term colored with me all the time. And it affected me in a way that I, I was, had, didn't have a voice when I was young to, to talk about that word because I was young. And so I was the colored kid, right? But that was the, that was a common language, right? Now that's not, that's probably a much easier language than I had in Ohio than you would if you were in the South, right? I'm sure I would have been called many other things. But that was the norm. That was the vernacular. And so when I thought about this movie, you know, some of my first thoughts were, uh, was you're guilty from the moment you were born. You know, Johnny D said that he was like, you don't know what it's like, Brian, you're from Harvard, you're you're up there in Delaware. You don't know what it's like to to feel like you're guilty from the more the moment you were born, and then to have a family and see your children. He didn't say this, but this is what I translated. And then have a, have children who are like my children are guilty, and you know how precious and innocent they are. Mm-hmm. But in the eyes of the justice system or the white community in which he lived in Monroeville, they were guilty and had to always be on their p's and q's, right? Because there was no assurances that the system would work in their favor. That's right. They're also in, in a very poor situation. They were, they were, it was a, they were impoverished. Great family. You'll see this in the movie, an incredible system of support and love and belief, but certainly not, they were the least of, right, mm-hmm. when it came to socioeconomic. So I tried to watch this film as if I were a journalist, and I was just sitting back, taking notes and trying to see it as objectively as I possibly could. And boy, I tell you, there's no objective way to look at this. This was just no. unjust. No. So, yeah. Rob, what were your thoughts? Oh, so many. I mean, this journey for me goes back to first reading the book. I think it's been at least five years now when I sat down and someone recommended it to me and I first heard about Brian Stevenson and just his story. And so for me, this has been a long journey of leaning into him. I think I mentioned this in a previous episode of almost seeing him as a mentor from afar Yeah, where I... I couldn't have more respect for someone as they navigate addressing injustice, but doing it with such where that he doesn't water down the truth, but he also speaks with grace in a time where that I just don't see that happening a lot. And and he just knows how to speak truth to power. I mean, he, he just seems yeah. to be really pressing in and not compromising his mission, but doing it in a way that almost is inviting, I guess, mm-hmm. is the way to say it. Yeah. And so for me, I... It's hard because how do you say you're excited is not the right word to say you're excited about a film, but thankful that it it was made and thankful that I knew that it was going to increase awareness for his work and increase awareness about the book, Mm -hmm. which I think if people found the movie to be 
meaningful or educating than the book even much more so because mm-hmm. you can really dive into the nuance of the story that any film can't really can't do. Really pull out, yeah. So I've been sitting with that story for a long time. I think for me, honestly, Jess, it was not the content that I was more familiar with, but who I watched it with, mm. which I think is why I consider what we do in this podcast such a blessing of being able to absorb things not in a vacuum or a bubble. Mm-hmm. So because of the nature of my work, you know, ReCity is trying to address in, injustice uh, in a restorative way. So anyone who's trying to do that and it gets turned into a film, then that's a no-brainer, right? So we we pulled our resources together and we rented out Northgate Theater here in Durham. And Come we just on. we bought a whole theater and said, this is important. This movie matters. Mm-hmm. And um, if you would like to come see it with us, we're just going to make it free and available to the community. And so we filled a theater with 150 community members in Durham and we just watched it together. And that was, it's hard to describe what that feels like to be in a, that's so different than watching it in your own home mm-hmm. around your family or people who have your same experience Yeah, because things hit differently and parts that I would have overlooked or I didn't know how they resonate or I, maybe I had questions about if I were in Walter McMillan's shoes or, or uh, Brian Stevens' shoes in that moment, how would I feel if I was a black man? Like I didn't, I kind of got that question answered for me a little bit because, yeah. you know, the guy sitting next to me was a African-American man yeah, and I could hear mm-hmm. the visceral responses. Yeah. yeah. And to me, that was it. It was the emotion. Yeah. And that to me is, I, I always forget it in my relationships with my, my friends of color addressing injustice it is a privilege to address injustice as an intellectual exercise yeah like i can exercise the right of privilege for this just to be a my a a brain thing Mm -hmm. just educational thing and my friends of color do not have that privilege Mm -hmm. it is emotional because it is tied to their lived experience and that is a barrier that can be bridged but I have to be really intentional to bridge that barrier. Otherwise, I could fall into danger to just trying to trying to inform myself on these things without humanizing them. Yeah. And really letting – I love this. was from a quote talking about the movie. He said, you can, for, you can forget a statistic. You can't forget these stories. Right. That's right. And I think white people especially have the option of keeping things at the statistic level. But – I mean, my friendship with you and, and so many of my, my brothers and sisters of color show me that, you know, to them, these are not statistics. These are stories. Yeah. Which which is a much different response. It's easy to forget that the costs on it. And we're going back to the movie now because it's, it was so obvious, even though I took a journalistic standpoint by sitting there and taking notes. I was drawn in and moved deeply around the family and around his children and the cost that I saw them going through, the pain that I saw them have to endure in order to seek justice through an injustice. Hmm. It was an unintended, like this, they should never have had to do it, right? Right. And those, that's the wake that is left through this misguided, broken system that is fueled by racial tension and power structures where if you watch the movie, even though all the evidence was very clear that they needed to do a retrial because it didn't add up. Hmm. I mean, everybody's like, it doesn't add up. And the district attorney was like, yo, 
it's, you know, our community is angry about this murder. Someone's got to pay. Someone has to pay. It doesn't really matter who. It didn't really matter. And how about the poor guy, right, right? Who who's doing the best that he can for his family and someone else frames him and says, you know, I th- I'm pretty sure I saw him. He was standing over the body, all this stuff, and none of it made sense and none of it added up. It still was the best case scenario for the DA to get this off the books, have somebody in the prison system and to bring his community. And we're talking about those white community Mm. back into balance. Right. Uh So that the fear wasn't raging through the community. Meanwhile, there was a true murderer that's out there. Right. 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 So. And so his family, his wife, his family, and you saw the extended family and neighbors, the the, the true physical and emotional toll that they endured, in addition to obviously, right, McMillan and what he had to go through and, and the other inmates to which he bonded and developed friendships with that also were questionable, right? There's just so much yeah. at stake here. When you say that, I think immediately... There is, it's complicated, right? Because there was a murder. A young white woman was killed. Yes. And it's not wrong to want to seek justice to, to right the wrong. But oh. I think that what motivates you to get ups, upset yeah. who, wh- when it affects someone like me? Because that same outrage is not present. It depends on who it is that's, that's affected right. by the injustice, right? That's right. Um and I think that we fail to pick up everyone's cause. I think I think a lot of times we look societally like who do we, who what causes outrage? Right, right. You've talked. We and I, you and I've talked about this in some of the shootings in Durham. Like if if uh, if a name right sounded different, yeah, or the location was, or the different. location was different, right. It's a difference between it making the front page and being in the in the media for weeks or not being covered at all. At all, right. And or being covered with the tone of another murder, right? Right. Like as if it's like, like as if that's like, that, that's oh, the community's norm. fault. This is the norm. Right. Or the norm. This is or, or what the it norm. is. Or normative, right? It's very corm- very um, normal. Yeah. But another thing you said was about cost, and I think that's something that I think we need to recognize as well is that it's not just you processing the cost on screen. It's that there's just a higher cost to process this information too. Yeah. If you hmm. are directly affected by the content. It's a, it's a, and I think that's something that's not said yeah. enough, Jess. Like it's not, especially by by white people. And I've done this. I do this. I still do this. I, where I don't realize how much I don't count the cost for my friends of color in the way I invite them into conversations that could be triggering to them in ways that I'm blind to. Right. And that's not really caring well for them. And you've shown me grace when that's happened in our friendship, right? And, and people have shown me. But I, sh- I should try to learn from that mm-hmm. and try to stop doing it. Yeah. Right? We can experience content differently based on who we are and how we and and who we like as a parent right not just race but like as a parent or as a grandparent or as a sister or as a wife of someone who's you know whose husband might be in jail or whatever we don't know what we're bringing to the table or how we are showing up as a community and so these conversations have to be you have to be careful around them be thoughtful be mindful you know don't say something if you aren't sure about it. just don't talk you don't have to say something all the time right, right? Right. So just don't. But then sometimes it might be okay because that learning is real and true. Right. And I think that to to 
piggyback off that of don't don't take don't talk as in act uh, as, a, as a command or a permission for inaction either right because i think that what jesse's oh, yeah. saying is how he's able to clean up I'm like, don't, don't, no, don't, don't let the though, white people off the hook it. come that's on now saying. come on right. i can that's give right. the tough look i can talk to I, mean. I can talk to my people right let you me do that do uh, i'm an expert on being a white guy um <laughs> i think that lean just because it's difficult and you want to be careful doesn't mean that you don't take action because i think there's a lot of my white brothers and sisters that feel paralyzed I talk to them, right? And they come to me, I just don't know what to do. And so they do nothing. And that, you know, that really keeps the status quo alive when people feel paralyzed and so afraid to make a mistake. Um, And so I think that if you're listening to this, don't, I think that you can learn from this. And if you have, make sure that just you walk in as conscious as you can to do the work yourself and don't, don't walk into conversations and make other people do that work for you. And I think some of what's been most helpful for me is processing this with other white people who I respect who are further along the journey than I am Yeah, because I can, I can learn and I can have, I can feel more equipped to enter into spaces where I'm talking to someone with a different lived experience that I might not fumble through my words as as much, right? Because I'm vetting that in uh, a conversation with a, a white person mm-hmm. that has gone through that before and can help coach me. I think that's a good place to start. With your people, yeah. <laughs> just kidding. I'm saying that to be funny, but I'm serious. But like, I actually believe that's true. To start. I, I yeah. do believe yeah. that. Don't and stay there. Sort that through. Yeah, because right. to stay there is you're just at your Thanksgiving table. Yeah. for the rest of your life. That's exactly right. Just hearing from your own perspective, that's and you exactly never right. get your gaps. That's admiring addressed. the problems. Yes, just going back to that. Admiration. So both and right. That's right. Yeah, but in, maybe in a certain order. Yeah. No, I love it. Well, if we haven't made you that uncomfortable, then we didn't do our job because that was kind of the idea, right, is to go into this part one of two parts around Just Mercy to get you thinking, to sort of lay the groundwork around our justice system and the broken pieces that we face as a community, right? And that we're all responsible for seeing it and trying to figure out what our roles and responsibilities are as we live through it. So I'm excited about our part two, where we'll be bringing in the district attorney, Durham County's district attorney, to help us really think this through in a more nuanced way, in a more very direct and specific way. Normally, at this point, where we sort of wind down our episodes, we'll do a show up moment. Mm-hmm. But I think it might be best for both for not just you and I, but for our listeners to just take a second, hear what we what we talked about, right. think that through a little bit. And we'll do a full show up at the end of, of this next part, part two, when we have that full picture in front of us. I think we'll be better positioned. I think we'll. That's good. Yeah. That's On that note. Thanks so much for listening to Just, a part of the Capital Broadcasting Podcast Network in partnership with ReCity and Coastal Credit Union. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. New episodes of Just will drop every other week, so subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview for our next show. Yeah, one of the things that bothers me the most about the criminal justice system is that people expect us to fin- to fix through punishment what we didn't bother to put together to start with. Mm-hmm. People want on the back end us to punish people who act out in, in ways that are aggressive uh, when they're adults, when maybe as a child they were screaming the whole time mm-hmm. that I needed help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just too late. Like, we're really just... 
we're not making people's lives better 